Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Uh, I sense a lot of joy in the house of the Lord today, so that's good. During the four Sundays of Advent, we are engaging with four Hebrew prophets. Now, these prophets were poets who spoke to Israel in the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel. They pronounced judgment on Israel for their idolatry and their injustice. But they also declared that God is faithful and that God would bring salvation to Israel. This salvation, the prophets foretold, would come to Israel by God somehow becoming present with them. Because when we are talking about the living God, presence is salvation. Presence is salvation. Today we're going to look at Zephaniah, one of the more obscure prophets. He's one of the minor league prophets. Well, minor prophets. You have the four major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Hosea, and then you have the 12... Or, or, and, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. And then you have the 12 minor prophets. So Zephaniah, he's, uh, he's playing double A ball in the Old Testament. Uh, we don't know much about, uh, about Zephaniah. We know that his ministry was during the reign of Josiah, King Josiah, who reigned from 640 to 609 B.C., where there's reason to think that his ministry occurred before the Great Reformation movement launched by King Josiah in 622. So you might think it was like in the 630s. You don't even care about that. Maybe the Enneagram Fives do, but most of you don't. Anyway, uh, if he's ministering in the 630s, that means he's, he's kind of emerging at the tail end of Isaiah's ministry. So Isaiah was maybe, you know, his pattern, probably his hero or something like that. Now, the first two and a half chapters of Zephaniah, they are bleak. They are full of threats of judgment on both Jerusalem and their Gentile enemies. It's, it's, a, it's reading that is not particularly uplifting. <laughs> the first two and a half chapters of Zephaniah. But at the end of his poem, the prophet turns to hope and promise. Zephaniah is saying that Yahweh will come, and when Yahweh comes, he will bring salvation because presence is salvation. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 14. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. 
you shall see disaster no more. In that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, do not fear. Zion, let not your hands be weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. The mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Now, this is quite a change. A sudden and abrupt change for Zephaniah, considering how he's been going on and on. At the beginning of his poem, Zephaniah says things like this. Be silent before the Lord God. Be quiet. Stop talking. Shut up. Because the prophet's going to lay some doom on him. Be silent before the Lord God. For the day of the Lord is at hand. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom. But now Zephaniah has changed his tune. Zephaniah has a new song to sing. He has something else to prophesy and so be silent before the Lord has turned into sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel. So he starts off, don't say anything, be quiet, don't say anything. And he brings his prophecies of doom and gloom. But then at the end, he changes. He says, no, 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 it's time to sing, it's time to shout. What brings about this change? Well, because Zephaniah says to Israel, the Lord has taken away your judgment. Judgment is coming, but it's taken away. So sing and shout. Zephaniah envisions Yahweh coming to rescue Israel and that he will be mighty to save, that he will come with salvation as his intent. Zephaniah also speaks of Yahweh as the king of Israel. This is interesting. He's saying, God is our king, Yahweh is king, and the Lord who is our king, he will come and he will say. Because, you know, it's towards the end of the long monarchy that had begun with such promise with David, but went off the rails pretty quick. Right now they've got King Josiah. He's a pretty good one, to be fair about it. A rare, half-decent king. Before him was his father Ammon, who was horrible just terrible. He reigned for two years and it was just terrible. Before him, this would be Josiah's grandfather, Manasseh. He was the worst ever, the worst king in the history of Israel or Judah. Reigned for 52 years and it was all horrible. And so Zephaniah seems to have lost his enthusiasm for the princes of men bringing about the purposes of God. Remember, the whole idea of a king of Israel wasn't God's idea to begin with. God acquiesced to the pressure put upon him in the days of the judge, Samuel, and finally says, okay, all right, I'll give you a king, you're not going to like it. Be careful what you ask for, sort of thing. And so Zephaniah says, yeah, uh, if salvation's going to come, it's going to come from the king, but it's not going to come from any of those kings. So what if, what if Yahweh, what if our God became our king? What if God, he doesn't say how, this is the prophets never do this. They never say how, how could God in heaven come on earth and be a king? He doesn't say, 
But that's what he prophesies. That somehow God himself is going to come to Israel and be their king. No longer will Israel put their trust in the princes of men. The day of the Lord, in the day of the Lord, Israel will trust God to be their king. That's, that's the essence of the messianic hope. Messiah, Mashiach, anointed one. In the New Testament, in Greek, Christos or Christ. It means God's own king, the king that God will anoint. Not men, but the king that God will anoint. That's what Messiah means. And they needed to hear that in Zephaniah's day. And guess what? I think we might need to hear it today. When religious leaders put their trust in earthly rulers, they betray the very essence of faith. I said, when religious leaders put their trust in earthly rulers, they betray the very essence of faith. They no longer have faith. They have an agenda. I mean, I've seen this for 40 years now. And that's what it began about that time. About 40 years ago, increasingly, religious leaders were drawn into the vortex of political agenda. And so they have to regularly tell people, this is the most important election thing happening since God said, let there be light. And they talk like that year after year and it gets more extreme and more out of control and more ridiculous. When spiritual leaders become a tool for partisan politics, you can feel the falseness of their faith. It's no longer a faith, it's a bid for power. Zephaniah tells Israel that the good news is that God is coming and that God himself will be king. All right, I got that out of my system. Now let's look at, uh, let's, let's look at this one more time because it's so good. It bears... Well, we heard it as our scripture reading this morning, and then I went through it once, but a, a third time might, might be just what you need. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. This is, this is after. Be silent before the Lord. The day of the Lord is coming. Be quiet. Nope. Shout and sing. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. That's a turn away from, it's going to be a day of darkness and gloom. That's back in the first chapter. No, it's not going to be a day of darkness and gloom. It's a day to be glad and rejoice with all your heart. Here's why. The Lord has taken away your judgments. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We are saved because Jesus walks the world as the pardon of God. And mercy triumphs over judgment. He has cast out your enemy. You know, Jesus said that when demons are being cast out, the kingdom of God has come among you. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. See, the theme today, my theme is that, is that presence is salvation. It's simply, it's, it's when God comes as king in our midst among us. That's salvation. If God is near, if God is here, we're going to be rescued. We're going to be all right. The king of Israel, the Lord, not Josiah, not Ammon, not Manasseh. The king of Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, do not fear. Do not fear. This is, this is always, always the most relevant prophetic word. Fear not. Don't be afraid. Someday I should just do a year-long series <laughs> on fear not. Because it's always the most relevant prophetic word. 
Whatever is not from faith leads us astray and fear has torment. And that's why the most relevant prophetic word is always don't be afraid. God is with you. God is for you. It's going to be okay. Stop, stop being tormented and manipulated and led astray by fear. Do not fear. Zion, let, let not your hands be weak. Let not your, lift up your hands. Lift up. This, this is how the early Christians always prayed like that. They would lift up their hands and lift up their head. And they'd pray like, don't let your hands be weak. Don't let your lift up your hands in the holy place and worship the Lord. Don't be afraid, Zion. Lift up your hands. Don't let them be weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. That's the second time we've been told that. The Lord your God is in your midst. God is going to be in our midst. The mighty one will save because presence is salvation. When the Lord, Yahweh, the mighty one, comes in our midst, he comes to save. Presence is salvation. God, as our king, will do three things. Look what he's going to do. Number one, he will rejoice over you with gladness. When God comes, God's going to be glad about you, not mad at you. Glad about you. Could you believe that, that God would be glad about you? He will rejoice over you with gladness. God says, ah, at the very, at the very, every time I think of it, over them with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. God is coming to you with, with a motherly love. He'll quiet you with, quiet you. You know how a mother can quiet a, a child that's upset. God's going to come to you with a motherly love and quiet you with that love. And then third, he will rejoice over you with singing. When God sings, the songs of salvation over you, you will be saved. This, this, picture's, now, this picture's God coming to us as king somehow, we're not told how, but somehow Yahweh himself will come as king and he'll sing songs. And he'll sing songs over us. I, I like the idea that salvation comes and happens to you when Jesus starts singing songs over you. Anybody like that? Jesus singing, okay, so, so that's the prophecy from like 630 years or so before Christ. How does Zephaniah's Advent prophecy come to pass? Well, all we need to do is venture over to Matthew, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, in Luke's, this passage is also in Luke, very similar, a little different, but in Luke's, account of the same passage it starts out like this at that time Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit rejoiced in the I don't I don't I don't know what he did but it was somehow Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said I thank you father lord of heaven and earth because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants yes father for such was your gracious will all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you that are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, 
and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So if we're asking the question, well, how does Zephaniah's Advent prophecy come to pass? How does Yahweh, the living God, the creator God, the eternal God, how does God come to us as king? How does it come into our midst with his salvation as king? Well, all the promises of God find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. All of them. All of them. How does Yahweh become Israel's king? Through Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the king of the Jews. And now the king of the Jews has become the king of all nations. Don't ask me. No, don't ask me for your political allegiance. Because I've already given it all of it. I don't have any left over. Don't have any spare. Can you, can you spare some political allegiance? No, I cannot. I've already pledged it all to the king of all nations. Who's Jesus Christ, king of the Jews, king of kings and lord of lords. Yeah, that's real for me. Zephaniah prophesied that God would be in the midst of Israel as the mighty one to save. Well, one of the titles for Jesus the Christ is Emmanuel, God with us, God in our midst. And, it, and of course, the, the prophets always say more than they realize. So God, Zephaniah says, is coming and God will be in our midst and he'll be mighty to save as he's in our midst. But even Zephaniah couldn't have imagined that God would be, in, that God would be among us as one of us. That God would decide to join humanity by becoming fully human. Whew! Didn't see that one coming. But that's how humanity is saved. So humanity goes astray. We're all in Adam. We're all in this original state of human beingness that has gone awry and God in Christ takes on humanity to give humanity a new progenitor, a new start. This is what Isaiah, well, he doesn't understand it when he says it. He's just prophesying by the spirit, but it's how we should understand that in Isaiah nine, the child that is given to us, that is born among us, one of his titles is everlasting father. Because Jesus starts a new way of being human, a new kind of human, so that all who are in Christ belong to this new humanity that is being healed and saved by God in Christ becoming fully human. So God in Christ assumes humanity to heal humanity and restore humanity, and Jesus is God's presence among us as presence is salvation. Jesus is the salvation of God. I mean, everywhere Jesus went, what happens? I mean, Jesus just needs to show up. It doesn't matter where. He just shows up. What happens? Demons are cast out. The sick are healed. The poor are provided for. And sinners are forgiven. You can just say, yeah, if Jesus shows up, what's going to happen? Demons are going to be cast out. The sick are going to be healed. The poor are going to be provided for. And the sinners are going to be forgiven. That's what happens. Jesus is the salvation of God. Well, his name, Yahshua. You know what Yahshua gets anglicized into Jesus, but it's Yahshua. Do you know what it means? Yahweh saves. That's his name. 
And Jesus lives up to it. His name is Yahweh saves and he lives up to his name. Jesus is the salvation of God, the grace of God, the pardon of God, the healing of God, the wisdom of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, all of these things. This is who Jesus is. When Jesus sings his songs of salvation over us, we are saved in every way. Let's look at it again. At that time, Jesus said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants, to babes. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Okay, look. Theology is done with intelligence. Theology is like any other ology, like any other field of study, right? You have cosmology or geology or biology. And we also have theology, the disciplined study of God. All right, that's fine, that's good. I acknowledge it, that's true. But Jesus is known experientially by revelation. A revelation given under the heart. See, what I want you to know is that the intelligence, that intelligence gives no advantage in an actual experience of God. Intelligence, you know, it has its role. And if we're talking about setting forth theology, some modicum of intelligence is probably helpful. But if we're talking about the experience of God, actually experiencing God, not, not objectively standing at a distance but in, and talking learnedly about God, but actually entering into knowing God, not knowing about God, but knowing God, intelligence gives you no advantage. It's revealed to babes. It's revealed to It's revealed. That's the key. It's revealed. It's, and what is the organ of receptivity to the revelation of God? It's the heart. It's the heart. Some of you have been driven all the way up inside your head. You're up in your head all day and all night. I'm going to invite you to come down into the heart. Come down into the hearth room where there's a fire kindled and Jesus can be met there. And you can experience him. Hmm. So look what he says. Jesus says this, come to me. Come to me, all you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Jesus says, come unto me. He says, come unto me. Jesus says, come unto me because you can. This is not an empty invitation. Jesus says, come unto me because you can. Intentionally acknowledge and open up to the presence of the Christ who is now eternally in our midst. You can come to Jesus 
because he is eternally present to you. This is what I do when I sit with Jesus each morning. I have a time when I just open to the presence of Jesus and I sit with him. I'll talk about that in prayer school. Coming up Friday night, Saturday morning, January 6th and 7th. The final session on Saturday morning is about sitting with Jesus. When we sit with Jesus, we bring our weary and worn soul into the presence of Jesus. Why? Because presence is salvation. Jesus says, if you come to him, you will learn from him. Jesus, come to me and you'll learn from me. What, what will you learn? Well, not theology, not, not in the academic sense anyway. You're not going to learn theology like that. Not like the kind you would get in a seminary or something like that. Uh, Jesus does not give theology lectures. I'm not saying they're not without value. I think they are. But Jesus doesn't give them. He delegates that to some other people. Uh, Jesus does not give theology lectures. Uh, what you will learn is what God is like. Because God is like Jesus. That's why Jesus says, no one knows the Father except to whom the Son reveals him. God is like Jesus. And if you will spend time not just studying about Jesus, standing at a distance, measuring Jesus and comparing his words. and No, but if you'll just come to him, sit with him, be present with him, you will learn what God is like because God is like Jesus. In the presence of Jesus, you will learn to become accustomed to things like peace and love and joy. Because these are the things that radiate off of Jesus. But when you sit with Jesus, his presence is salvation. And you're, the, you're, you're opening to Jesus. You're acknowledging him. Jesus, I'm here. I'm sitting with you. You're here. I'm here. We're together. And in that moment of openness to the presence of Jesus, there's things that radiate off of Jesus. Things like peace and joy, forgiveness, mercy, kindness. These sorts of things just hum and radiate off of Jesus and, 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 and it washes over your soul. So you're learning what God is like and you're learning what love and joy and peace feel like. It's a turn to the subjective. I mean, you could look, you can sit around and learnedly do a whole, you know, doctoral thesis on love and joy and peace. Or you can get in the presence of Jesus and know what they feel like. You may never write a learned thesis on the peace of God. Who cares? <laughs> if you can feel the peace of God and it can seep into your soul and you can say, oh, the peace that God has, I have now too. I've learned to feel what God feels. Just because God cares doesn't mean God's anxious. If you come to God and say, I'm so worried, God's not going to say, yeah, I am too. I'll tell you what, Whew, what are we going to do? God will care, but he's not going to worry with you. He's going to exude peace. 
In the presence of Jesus, you learn to become accustomed to what it feels like to have peace and love and joy. Now, on the other hand, there are, there are other things you can sit in the presence of. Cable news and social media will make you feel like fear, things like fear and rage and disdain and hate are normal. Even to be celebrated. Right? The most fear-motivated, disdainful, raging, hate-oriented posts. And see how many likes you get. You get a lot. Because you've come into a realm where these things are normalized and even celebrated. Presence is damnation if you abide in the presence of the Satan, the accuser. I mean, if, if that's what you're present to, that presence isn't salvation. That, that presence is a kind of damnation. So what we have to do, because we all live in this world as it is, we have to bring our soul, poisoned with the toxins of this age, with great intention into the presence of Jesus because presence is salvation. Once you've really come into the presence of the Lord and open to him, you don't need to say much. You don't need to say maybe anything. You are in the presence of what your soul needs to be saved. Where there's fear, where there's hate, where there's malice, where there's envy, where there's anxiety. Mostly where there's fear. That's when most, everything else is kind of an outgrowth. Fear metastasizes into a bunch of other stuff. But it's mostly the fear that's the problem. And you sit with Jesus and fear just, it's like, it's like radiation on a cancerous tumor. It just shrinks and shrinks and shrinks. And one day you'll get up and go, I'm not afraid anymore. I'm not afraid anymore. And you might say, and somebody say, has everything changed? No, not everything's changed, but I'm not afraid anymore. Are circumstances different? Not much, but I'm not afraid anymore. Because I've sat with Jesus. And I've picked up his piece. I can't ever read Matthew eleven, twenty-eight without thinking of my dear friend, K.D. Butt. K.D., I hope to see him. I can't, not, not this year, but the very beginning of 2024. 20, is that 23? I'm losing track. He'd be nigh on to 80 by now. I've known him for decades. K.D. is an Indian. He grew up in northern India as a Brahmin, high caste Hindu. In his 20s, he was teaching Hindu philosophy at the great university there in Varanasi. Varanasi is the famous city where Hindus desire to die and be cremated. And you've maybe seen pictures of that. And K.D. was there teaching Hindu philosophy. And at the university, he encountered a Christian that was also employed there at the university. And KD, by his own admission, says, I hated him. I hated him because he was a Christian. I hated him because he was bringing his newfangled Christian religion into India, which has this ancient religion. I hated him. He said, but I also paid attention to him. I watched him for six months. At the end of six months, I had to admit he had two things that I did not have. He had peace and he had joy and I didn't have either one. So K.D. screwed up his courage and went to this man and 
asking for a Bible. The man wisely just gave him a New Testament. And KD began to read, but in secret. He didn't want anybody to know that this teacher of Hindu philosophy was now reading a Christian New Testament. And so he would lock himself away like in a closet, lest anybody find him reading. And he didn't get very far. If you're reading the New Testament, Matthew 11 shows up pretty quick. He got to a Matthew 11, he got to verse 28, and Jesus, come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy burdened, and I'll give you rest. And see, Katie didn't think about it. He didn't analyze it. He didn't study it. He didn't compare it with what, you know, Hindu Brahmins would teach about this or that. He engaged with it. And he said, Jesus, if you are real, I'm coming to you because I'm weary and I'm heavy burdened and I have no peace and I have no joy and I'm coming to you. And Jesus appeared to him, appeared to him, appeared to him. Saved him because presence is salvation and then put his hand on him and called him preached the gospel in North India. That was 50 years ago or more. And he's been so faithful. Planted churches and labored. But it all begins with this moment of encounter. KD wrote a hymn. A praise chorus. It's very famous in India. Among the Christians. He sang it for me one time. It's in Hindi. So I didn't get a lot out of it. I said, well, now give me a translation. And he did the best he could to translate it. But the song, is a, it's, the song is sung to Jesus. And it's saying, Jesus, you came to me. You came to me, Jesus, and you gave me peace and you gave me joy. And Perry, you know KD. He's always joyful. He's always laughing. He's always, because he didn't have any peace. He didn't have any joy. But Jesus said, come to me. And he did. And Jesus gave him his peace and his joy. And he has it to this day. All right, I've gone on long enough, I think. Let's go back to where we started. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. This is the word of the Lord for you in Advent. Ready for the word of the Lord for you in Advent 2021? Here it is. The Lord your God is in your midst. The mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. And so come to the presence of Jesus and let him sing over you the songs of salvation because presence is salvation. Stand up with me. And we're getting ready to come to the presence of the Lord that is Holy Communion. Jesus is present to us in the bread and in the wine, offering us communion with his body and his blood. Confess with me our Christian faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. 
He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now join with me in confessing our sins. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. In the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come. Because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you.